Good morning. I really wanted to jump right into the lesson. Every good preacher worth his salt knows that on a day like today with a large crowd and food waiting that the timer gets a little shorter every moment. But I have to take a moment and just say that we are glad that you are here. We are thankful for such a good, good crowd to be together this morning. Whether you are visiting with us for the first time or certainly many of you are returning, we are thankful that you have chosen to be here. We hope that you'll be with us the rest of the day. Uh, we hope that you'll stay through lunch and even our afternoon service, worship service in song. We just look forward to being together and enjoying some fellowship. I've told several of you I don't know how long I get to play the new guy card. I'll try one more time. Uh, my family and I are very, very blessed. We consider ourselves very, very lucky, very, very blessed to be able to work with this congregation here, to be able to step in to a role that was filled so well for so long, and not only that, but for two preachers to continue to work together. Uh, we are just very thankful, and that's really more a testament than anything to this congregation and the group of people that are here. If you're here this morning and you're looking for a church home, you won't find a better group of people than are here, and we're thankful for that. If you're visiting with us, we're glad that you're here. We look forward to studying together for just a few moments this morning, and yes, even enjoying some of that food that I know the smell will be slowly creeping in, so we'll get right into it here this morning. In lower Manhattan, there stands a tree. It's almost within a stone's throw of the Statue of Liberty, you might say. It's a calorie pear tree, as I understand it, that was believed to have been planted in the 1970s. It blooms early in the year and produces with that thousands of five-petal little white flowers. Amongst the hustle and bustle of New York City, we often have a mental image of cars and people and buildings, but it has stood strong for decades. It's possible that maybe even millions of people, of course, in New York City, millions of people have passed by this tree over the years without giving it a moment's notice. It is now marked by a simple sign, some steel railing, and some protective wires. About 90 miles due east, east-southeast of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, there stands a tower. It's 93 feet tall, made of concrete, but with holes in it, as you can see, hopefully. Those holes are there, if you will, to allow air to flow through it. That's because this tower also has 40 wind chimes inside of it that are made of aluminum. They're suspended within that tower there. It's in the middle of a field in Stony Creek Township. The field is near a reclaimed strip mine, and up until a few years ago, probably 95 at least, we maybe could even go further, but 95% of the United States population had no idea that this field even existed. Most of you remember the way that the country singer Alan Jackson said it, and he asked it this way, where were you when, that world, when the world stopped turning that September day? We probably all in some form or fashion over the last week spent part of the week remembering where we were on that tragic September day, considering and remembering those terrible and tragic events. And there are things that sometimes remind us of those awful moments. That tree is known as the survivor tree. It was found charred with broken branches and severely damaged sometime in October of 2001, almost a month after the attacks actually took place. It was removed from its site and cared for at a nursery nearby in the Bronx. 
And nine years later, in 2010, it was replanted. And it still lives there to this day as just one symbol of resilience and rebirth. That tower is the Tower of Voices. It's 93 feet in height, represents the number of Flight 93 that fell into that field or crashed into that field that day. And there are now contained within that tower 40 wind chimes that represent the 40 passengers and crew who lost their lives in that terrible plane crash. You know, it's interesting that not just in our culture, but around the world, we have things with which we remember specific events. We have things that cause us to remember something that happened and to encounter the feelings and the thoughts that went along with that particular place. This tree and this tower serve as memorials to help us to never forget September 11th, 2001. This morning, we're going to talk about altars for just a few moments. In the New King James, the word altar is used some 400 times in the entire Bible. But really, 94% of those 400 times are used in the Old Testament. That number, of that number, the 94% of its usage in general, of that number, almost half of them are located solely in Exodus and Leviticus. Now, it's important for us to consider because Exodus and Leviticus is where we find the discussion on the altar of incense and the altar of burnt offering. So the word is used over and over again multiple times in Exodus and Leviticus to simply discuss the instructions that were given to the children of Israel on maintaining these or creating them first of all, but then maintaining them, the things that were to be done upon them. But the word altar is used many other places as well. They get a lot of attention and rightfully so. There are other times in the Bible that the word for altar is discussed, and I believe that we can learn something from that discussion and what we read in the Bible even this morning. First of all, it would be beneficial for us to consider some of the biblical altars, some of the examples that we read about in the Bible of altars. The first instance that we read about is of Noah. The first instance we read about of an altar is in Genesis chapter 8 and verse number 20. Remember, if you will, that this has been almost 360 to 365 days, one year without dry land, one whole year for Noah and his family in this boat. And in verse number 18 of Genesis chapter 8, we read that Noah went out. Very simple statement as we read it in our Bible, but you can imagine the feelings that would come over Noah as he finally gets to exit this ark with his family his sons and his wife and his son's wives with him. In verse 19, we read the important passage that every animal, every creeping thing, every bird and whatever creeps on the earth, according to their families, went out from the ark. So as this disembarkment takes place and Noah and his family and these animals come off the ark, in verse number 20, we read that one of the first things, at least as it is recorded for us, that Noah did... after setting foot on dry ground, is build an altar. Imagine, if you will, Noah taking the time to collect the stones from wherever he could find them and placing them with great effort and energy in the correct place, in the proper position to make this altar to give thanks to the Almighty Creator. The God of heaven who promised destruction, and He did it, The God of heaven who also promised deliverance and he did that as well for those eight souls. And when no one living on the earth had ever heard of rain, 
He caused all the fountains of the great deep to be broken up. And the Bible says that the windows of the heavens were open so that it rained down upon the earth. Yes, God did that as well. And God's servant, Noah, paused after the unimaginable ordeal. Everything destroyed by water and built an altar to the Lord. We go just a few pages in your Bible to Genesis chapter 12. You don't have to go very far, although those few pages still represent several hundreds of years. But you don't have to go very far until we come across another great man. He is not yet Father Abraham. No, not yet. Not yet tempted and tried. But in Genesis chapter 12 and verse number 1, the Bible says, Now the Lord had said to Abram. And after Abram hears the great promise of the Lord, he does obey And he does take his family and all his possessions and he departed as the Lord had told him to do. And what's interesting, and we're going to come back to this in just a few moments, but what's interesting is that this great man of faith begins a pattern of as he goes and stops, as he goes and stops, he builds an altar to the Lord. I'm sure it took time. Each and every time to find the rocks and to find the stones. I'm sure it took effort and energy to put into this altar. But he did it. And in Genesis chapter 12 and verse number 7. Then just 26 words later in verse number 8. Then in Genesis chapter 13 and verse number 4. And then just 14 verses later in verse number 18. Abram built an altar to the Lord. We go a little bit further. Exodus chapter 17. We studied Moses earlier this year from this pulpit and in several lessons as our young people looked at it for the last leaders program. The auditorium class that meets here on Sunday morning is now looking at Exodus again. And Moses has led the children out of Egypt. He has led them through the Red Sea. God has been working in their lives. And in Exodus chapter 17, they have come to Rephidim. When Amalek comes to fight with them. You will remember that Moses decides to go to the top of the hill with the rod of God in his hand. And in verse number 11, the Bible records that when Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. But when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. Now, I don't know if you can imagine what it was like to be on the field of battle that day. I would have been looking back at the hill every so often. Why are his hands down again? Get him up. We're losing again. And see that his hands, when they're raised, Israel prevails. And when they fall, Amalek prevails. So his hands become so heavy that they take a stone and they put it on the ground. And Moses sits on it. And they take Aaron and they put him under one arm or hand. And they take her and they put him under one arm or hand. And they support him until Joshua and the children of Israel are victorious in battle and able to defeat Amalek. And in verse number 15 of Exodus chapter 17, after this great battle, Moses built an altar to the Lord. It may not have been much, but he took the time and he put forth the energy and the effort and he built an altar and called its name, the Lord is my banner. We go forward even later to Judges chapter 6. And we read of the beginning of Gideon's time as a judge over Israel. 
It's not, this, it's not this great story to begin with because Gideon is hesitant at first. Gideon does not want to jump into the leadership role. He says, hey, I'm not your guy. I'm not the one that can do it. I'm the lowest of my family, of the lowest tribe. You've got the wrong person. But the angel of the Lord appears to him and shows him a sign. Gideon said, you got the wrong guy. But if you'll show me a sign, we'll, we'll talk. We'll see. And so when the angel of the Lord gives the sign to Gideon in verses 19 through 21 there of Judges 6, Gideon believes in verse number 22 and in verse 24, because of this encounter, because of meeting the angel of the Lord, because of seeing the sign, Gideon takes the time, he puts forth the energy and the effort, and he builds an altar to the Lord. Jehovah Shalom, the Lord is peace. Now, when we think about altars in the Bible, all of these accounts, all of these stories are interesting in their own right. We can look at the things that take place and find out that it's very, very interesting to see how God is working in the lives of the children of Israel. These are real events that we can learn something from. But this morning, to continue on, we want to make application for ourselves. And let's consider together in the next few moments four things that we can learn about altars from the Bible. Number one. They are to the Lord. In almost every instance that we have looked at this morning already, Noah, all of Abram or Abraham's altars, and even Gideon, the Bible records for us that his altar was built to the Lord. It's not on the honeydew list. It's not art just to do it. It is done unto the Lord. I picture in my mind, and maybe you will as well, someone who is going through this process in a very painstakingly careful manner. Not because they're necessarily scared that if one rock is out of place, that they're going to be consumed with fire from heaven, but with care and concern. They are taking care to make sure every step is correct, every step is done right, because it is done to the Lord. The same theme, of course, is carried over to the New Testament, the New Covenant, the Christian age. In Colossians chapter 3 and verse number 17, Paul tells those who would read his letter, and whatever you do, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. And he says it a second time, even later, Colossians chapter 3 and verse number 23, and whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men. Anything, everything, all that we do, do we give it our best? Are we known as people who do the best that we can do? Are we known as people, as someone who acts in our every being and in every action as doing it to the Lord? Or do we give it the half-hearted effort? Yo, old good try. You gave it your best shot. You just did what you could. We're just, we're just kind of going through the motions. How do we go through these actions in our life? When we read about altars in the Bible, we see that number one, they are done to the Lord. Number two, though, they are a connection or encounter with the Lord. Twice, Abraham and also Moses there in Genesis chapter 17, or excuse me, Moses in Exodus chapter 17, and even Gideon are said to have done this thing, built this altar, and then called upon the name of the Lord. We get caught up in that sometimes in our lives. People talk about calling on the name of the Lord. 
But once again, this altar, it's not just art. They've not just done it for the fun of it. It's not just some project. It is done to make a connection with God the Father in heaven above. We see from that very first instance with Noah that he built his altar to offer sacrifices to his Lord. I find it very interesting that these men and many others had a direct communication with God. Unlike ourselves today, who we don't hear the voice of the Lord necessarily in our ears. God doesn't speak to us in the same fashion. These folks had a direct line often. We read about different encounters. Do you remember, of course, Moses meeting God there in a sense at the burning bush? They had these types of encounters. But even with that, even though they kind of had this direct line to God... They used these altars, these hand-built monuments as a chance to connect to the Jehovah God. Notice as well that a making of a monument, an altar, a grouping of stone or metal does not in and of itself make someone connected to the Lord. Perhaps you remember in 1 Kings chapter 18 that there are altars built there in 1 Kings chapter 18. One is by the prophet of the Lord, Elijah. And the other is built by the 450 prophets of Baal. Remember beginning in verse number 26 there of 1 Kings 18. That the Bible says that from morning until noon. These 450 prophets of Baal called on the name of Baal. Saying, O Baal, hear us. But the Bible says there was no voice. No, no one answered. And even in verse number 29, there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention to what they were doing. And of course, for the children of Israel, the contrast is very stark. It's going to become even more so when the fire comes down and consumes the sacrifices and laps up all the water that Elijah takes part there in the sacrifice. But people take notice. There is no one hearing. The simple building of an altar is something, but just building something is not enough. Once again, for our application from our dispensation in the Christian age, following the words of Christ. Remember what some would call the harsh statement by our Lord in Matthew chapter 7 and verses 21 through 23. He talks there about those who would say that they're doing things, but they're not obeying the will of the Father. When we take it and put into our language, they're essentially saying, have we not erected tall monuments? Have we not built large buildings? Have we not made bigger church buildings? Have we not done many things in your name? We know that Jesus says it's not just about building the nicest, most expensive altar. It's not just about building the most expensive and largest building. It's about doing the will of the Father. One of the things we see about altars is they are done and make a connection or an encounter with the Lord. Number three, they represent sacrifice. They represent sacrifice. Nowhere is this fact more evident than on the altar that is built in Genesis chapter 22. Where the Bible records in Genesis chapter 22 and verse number 9 that Abraham came to the place of which God had told him. And Abraham built an altar there and placed the wood in order. And he bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar upon the wood. And we try our best. And we try our best to put ourselves in the picture, in the place of Abraham. Going through the motions. 
Maybe even taking a little longer on purpose. I'm just going to collect this. Maybe it takes me a little longer than normal. We're we're just going to pack. It's taking a little longer than normal. Just, Just delaying a little bit longer and a little bit longer because God had told him, turtle doves are nice. The animals that you've got, those are great. But it is here. In Genesis chapter 22, that we learn that an altar is not just about animals. It's not just about your stuff. It is about your best. We learn that when God says, I don't just want second place in your lives. And we know this because he asked the father of the faithful to prove it. To show him that he was willing to sacrifice with his own son. In Genesis chapter 22 and verse number 2, God makes sure we understand the seriousness of this. And I can hear him saying in my earthly voice, Abraham, take now your son. He could have stopped there. Abraham, take now your son, your only son. He could have stopped there. Abraham, take now your son, your only son, Isaac. Abraham could have said, I got the picture. Take your son, your only son, Isaac. Whom you love. And if Abraham wasn't probably shaken to his core with this thought, he might have said, God, I got it. I understand what you want. I know who you're talking about. And with each passing moment, with each step, and in verse number four, the Bible says that it was at least three days from the time that he gets the message from God going forward to build this altar. At least three days the father has to mull over giving of his best. Making a sacrifice of his son. Plenty of opportunity to say, well, we'll just detour here. We're not going to go where we said we were going. We're just going to stop over here for just a moment. We're going to pull out and just not do this. But God says, I want sacrifice. I want it to mean something to you. And when Abraham builds that altar, he gets the opportunity to sacrifice his son. Thankfully, as we see, we know that God stops him and he doesn't have to go through with that. But he wasn't yet the father of the faithful because he hadn't had to sacrifice in that way yet. The Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 12 and verses 1 and 2, Present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. You have to give you. I have to give me the best that we have. Abraham built an altar. And in the end, in verse number 14, he names it, The Lord will provide. For Abraham was willing to sacrifice, and the Lord did provide. Number four, we learn from altars in the Bible that an altar is to remember the Lord and to remember a commitment to God. It has been said of Abraham, and I love the way this sounds, wherever he had a tent, God had an altar. Wherever he had a tent, God had an altar. A personal investigator, if there was such a thing, in the Old Testament could have followed Abraham around pretty easily because all he had to do was follow the trail of altars that he left behind him. Wherever he had a tent, he had, God had an altar. Someone told me this week that their favorite person of faith was Abraham, and I agree. But he didn't just say it. He did it. He showed it. Everywhere he went, he built an altar To remember who he belonged to. Jacob in Genesis chapter 35. Built an altar to signify that it was there in Bethel where God had appeared to him. 
He had an encounter in Genesis 28 with God, and later he comes back to build an altar to remind him of that. In Judges chapter 6, again, the story of Gideon. Gideon seems to be saying, after this happens, I don't ever want to forget. I don't ever want to forget what happened here. So I'm going to put these stones up and make an altar. And every time I pass by these stones, I will remember that this is where I encountered God. Almost every time you read about an altar in the Old Testament, we see an opportunity to remember and to remember a commitment to the Lord. Do we have altars today? I would say that we do. And it is important for us to think about that as well. Our altars today are not just in a figurative sense or or are in a figurative sense, excuse me, not in a physical sense because we don't build them. There's not any here necessarily. But they're not in a negative sense. Sometimes we use that phrase, that idea of a thing that is given undue precedence. Thing that may be placed above uh, the cost of something else. For instance, we sometimes say that a man, he sacrificed his family on the altar of career advancement. That's, that's a negative sense. We don't want to talk about that. But we do have altars in a figurative sense today. And let's look at four of them very quickly. And the lesson will be yours. What about marriage? It's where we encounter God. It's a place where we make a commitment. And we don't have time to get into it this morning. But is that not the problem with marriage today? It's the commitment. We forget that it is a thing that is done unto the Lord. And it is most certainly a connection with God. It is most certainly a commitment. Not only to our spouse. But also to our God. And guess what? I hate to be the guy that says it. But you're no different than Abraham or Noah, it takes your time, it takes your energy, it takes your effort. We say it, but do we mean it? A marriage is not one plus one, but one plus one plus one. A man and a woman and God. It's an altar of sorts, and we would do well to remember that. What about baptism? This might be the most obvious or maybe even the most important. It's where we encounter God. It's done to Him. It's done to honor Him. It is our sacrifice. Our sacrifice of the old man of sin to death and rising to walk in newness of life as a new man. It's a type of altar and we need to consider that. Remember the words of Peter in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse number 21. There is also an antitype which now saves us baptism not the removal of the filth of the flesh but the answer of a good conscience my sacrifice my commitment unto God what about worship our worship is an altar that we can participate in today it should be where we encounter God I've said it before and I may say it a million times if I were to make it here 33 years but I'm glad you're here I want you here I even need you here. But if you're only here to please me, then I don't bother showing up. It's not about me. It's not about what I want. It's about Him. It's about coming to worship Him in spirit and in truth. Sure, it's a sacrifice even. I'll be the first one to tell you my bed was nice and cozy this morning. I could have laid there a little while longer. But it's about sacrifice. Our time, our energy, our effort. My worship is to Him and for Him. It's where I can encounter my God. And of course, our lives. We've already mentioned Paul's words to the Romans in chapter 12 and verses 1 and 2. But is your life a sacrifice? 
Are you giving anything up? Is your life lived daily in such a way that you encounter God with all that you're living through? Is it done unto Him? We're talking about everything. Again, your clothes, your words, your relationship. He wants all of it and it should be done. He wants your best. We do not practice our religion in the same way that they did under the old covenant. There are fewer things in front of us that remind us in a showy way. I don't mean that necessarily in a negative sense, but they did have the sacrifices. They did have to put forth that kind of effort, and we don't do as much of that. But what God does still require of us is obedience, sacrifice, and commitment. Maybe we need a few more of those moments. Opportunities for us to place down markers, if you will. Even as we began with thinking about the survivor tree and the, and the tower of voices, these things are not quite altars, but memorials to cause us to think. Maybe this morning you need to become a Christian. Maybe you need to commit to him for the first time. No need for stone. No need for blood or for animal sacrifice. But you still must be obedient. Even as Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, they're all obedient. Sure, in a different fashion, under a different law, we call it being gospel obedient today. Being added to the house of God, the church that belongs to Christ by the Lord, once you have been baptized for the remission of your sins. Maybe you need to recommit. Maybe you're here and you're already a child of God, a Christian. You need to confess sin in your life and pray for forgiveness. And we know from his word that God is faithful and will do just that. You know, one of the more fascinating accounts along these lines, it's not actually called an altar, but it's found in Joshua chapter 4. After these million to maybe even almost two million people, the children of Israel in Joshua chapter 4, they have crossed over the river Jordan on dry ground. And as they are doing that, or before they do that, Joshua instructs 12 men, one from every tribe, to take a stone. One stone each from the dry bed of this river and place them on the other side. So that this once great thing, this once great river that you would never imagine crossing on dry ground, once this thing was completed, they could put these stones to work. It's at the end of chapter 4 that we read that Joshua takes these stones and he sets them up. Again, it's not called an altar there. There is no sacrifice per se in that moment. But he sets them up as an altar or even a memorial and tells the people that he has done this thing so that when our children ask, what are these stones? We can answer. And we can answer even today as Joshua was able to tell the children of Israel that all the peoples of the earth may know the hand of the Lord, that it is mighty and that you may fear the Lord your God forever. Maybe for you this morning is baptism. Maybe for you it is a recommitment to Christ, to a life spent serving God and following Christ. Our elders stand ready and willing to assist you if you'll make your need known now as we stand together and as we sing.